0: This is Blake from the Gig Harbor Flycast podcast, and today on the show... I have my guest, Rich Sims. Rich is a founding board member of the Wild Steelhead Coalition and is a lifelong steelhead angler having fished all over the Pacific Northwest. But before we get into the show, uh, we're going to talk about steelhead fishing. Uh, But we run steelhead fishing trips, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, just our impact as anglers and how do we do that uh, ethically and responsibly. And it's a really difficult conversation. conversation to have Um, but uh, what we do is we swing flies kind of in the traditional wet fly uh, manner usually utilizing spay rods uh, and probably has the lowest impact if you're going to fish a hook this probably has the lowest impact on fish Um, but if you're interested in that check out our website there's links in the show notes and in the description below our trips include lodging and include food as well and so we have a house out in four So you come out the night before, we have a place for you to sleep in the morning, we'll cook you up some eggs and hash browns and then go hit the river. Lunch is provided on the river. If you book multiple days, we provide dinner as well in between after fishing. And so we'd love for you to consider joining us out on the coast. And with that, here is my conversation with Rich Sims. Rich, thanks for joining me today on the Gig Harbor Flycast, and uh, you guys are in for a treat for our conversation because um, I, I know how how good it's going to be. I I feel like I've already had it, and in in some sense I have. Uh, Rich is uh, one of the more gracious people I know because last week um, he came all the way down to uh, to Polsbo, took me out to lunch, we did the podcast, and uh, and then uh, thanks to a technical issue, we uh, the file. Um, I don't know the file somewhere. It's lost. It's, <laughs> it's I don't, in the cloud. It's in the, yeah. Oh gosh, I I don't use the cloud for anything because I I know know the problems. But uh, apparently my uh, fail safe uh, uh, program uh, was was no good. But so so we got Rich back today, and I'm really excited to talk uh, with Rich about Steelhead and let you guys listen in on uh, on some pr- really cool personal history around fishing as well as conservation. And um, and so Rich, when you you know. When you first started steelhead fishing or, or you know maybe you didn't see yourself as a steelhead angler, um, but at you know at, at a young age, but w- tell me about your first like encounters with a steelhead.
1: Sure. You know, it's it's like I said. It's it's always great to come down and talk to you, Blake. I mean, I always enjoy our conversations. And well, what are you doing next always, week? <laughs> I know it's like <laughs> well, let's do it again. We keep talking. This time, I want to drink while I'm <laughs> doing it. So besides water. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of a journey, right? And everybody kind of interacts with these fish differently when they first start and my first interactions were, were pretty basic just as a kid. And I used to do a lot of fishing around the streams around my house. I lived in Paulsbow and there was a couple little streams that emptied into Liberty Bay there. And I'd go fish them. And one day I went down to one of the streams and there's a little, little um, pocket or hole that came down and slushed through the, um, the um, underneath the highway and walked down there and I looked down and in the tail out of it there was a rather large fish finning just being happy and I'm like holy crap look at the size of that fish you know I haven't seen a cutthroat in the stream that big you know and so I just drifted a worm down to it and it went over and grabbed it and I got it and what I realized was I caught about a 24-inch steelhead that was, you know, probably about, you know, it's close to five pounds, and on my trout rod, and that was quite the, quite the moment. And I think what was really cool about it was I got this fish, and I'm looking at it, and and it's it's like I carried it over even to this day, where a lot of times when I catch a fish, I really look at it and I really look at the spots. You know, the eye has always been such a big deal to me when I look at the eye of a fish, right? And and I don't know what it is. Like, all my kids are the same way. It's like, they're all about looking or touching the eye, you know, of a fish, you know? But anyway, that was really my first encounter with a steelhead. And that was like, man, I want more of this. And, and I just... Had a really, I was really lucky because right next door I had an uncle that was a steelhead angler and he was really into it. And I'd go down to his house and talk to him and ask him and talk to him about steelhead. And he'd have like this big stack of, you know, field and stream and outdoor life. And I'd be thumbing through those all the time when he was at work or whatever and reading them. And also, I came across this one article. It was about the Dean River. And it was like, I had the, all these pictures of these steelhead from the Dean River. And I just like, oh, my God, I want to go there someday. And I remember, you know, a lot of kids like have race cars and everything, you know, taped up in their bedroom walls, right? But for me, I clipped out all these pictures of these <laughs> steelhead from the Dean River and I had them plastered <laughs> on my bedroom wall next to my bed, you know. And I'd look at those and stuff when I was a kid. And I was probably about... Gosh, I must have been like maybe 11, 12 years old, maybe, yeah. something like that. And uh, so my uncle started mm-hmm. taking me steelhead fishing. He he really liked fishing the Hood Canal streams originally. And I remember him coming home with some steelhead from the Hood Canal, like the Ducca Bush and the Dozy Walps and such. And even he'd go down and fish the Duwato, right? He'd wow. take me down there with him, and I would never catch anything. And <laughs> it was always funny because...
0: Uh, these, you are know, really, I, I, these are small streams yeah yeah, yeah. Really you know
1: and these these all had you know small viable runs of steelhead that you could go fish and people did wow. and you know you'd go down to even like a stream like the Tahuya and there would be like some cars parked there and yeah. people, people fishing have... the stream wow. right and that was what was so fascinating to me because for me you know i don't want to you know i'm probably in my well, I'm in my mid sixties and it's kinda like I've seen this this whole thing happen basically in my lifetime of all these opportunities that we had to go fish for steelhead and even some of these small local opportunities. Mm -hmm. And it's it's just so weird to me and kinda surreal to like know that now we're we're down to these last few spots and it's just it's it's so hard for me to to you know i don't want to say deal with it but it's just so hard for me to swallow right that we've gone from where i could pretty much fish anywhere i wanted you know 12 months out of the year yeah and go fish for steelhead to now where i have like these limited opportunities of specific places and now it's created this more crowded Fisheries and, you know, we're more impactful. I mean, we're probably more efficient and more effective than any time at our, you know, angling history on these fish, right? Yeah. And so it's just, it's really kind of interesting where it's taken me, even just from the time I was a kid to present day, right? But going back to my uncle, what was interesting is I'd, I'd be like complaining, right? I'd be the kid, like, you know, wet, leaky waders and, you know, complaining like, man, I'm not catching anything and complaining about it. And my uncle would always tell me, you're not going to catch anything with your line out of the water. <laughs> right. So I just kept with it and kept with it. And we'd make our trips over the Olympic Peninsula to fish together and like the hoe and the queets. And I remember one day I was just drifting a spinning rod in a oaky drifter and it stopped. And I thought I was hung up and pulled back and something else pulled back on me and all of a sudden this fish came skying out of the water and flopped on its side and took off and line was singing off my what was a I remember it was a damn quick I think spinning reel right <laughs> yeah. and I was just like worried heck you know that my eight pound test was gonna oh, like geez. snap you right. know and everything but I finally got that fish and got it in and I still have a great photo of it you know of course it was in my grandmother's you know kitchen you know it's like she never mind me walking into her house to show her my fish and stuff you sure. know the dripping on the floor yeah. and everything like that you know yeah. oh, that's such a nice fish rich you yeah. know it's like you, know. <laughs> you want me to cook it up for you, that's you great. Know. but yeah so that was really kind of my first really encounter with with a steelhead and i just started doing it I'd, I'd hang out with my uncle we'd go and he'd you know just we'd you know hey rich you want to go yeah sure you know we'd pile into his old 57 carryall and he had it kind of before van life was a thing you know he had it like with fold-down bunks and like drawers and everything and it was like the original van life <laughs> it was original sure. van lifer you know and and, uh, you know, I just wrote recently an article in the Flyfish Journal about a little bit about fishing with my uncle. And um, when he passed away at the uh, hospice care place he was at, um, there was a photo. And after all these years, uh, my cousins gave it to me. And... It was a photo of he and I in front of the old fifty-seven uh, carryall yeah. on the Olympic Peninsula on a fishing trip on the trip where I caught my first steelhead, and where nice. somebody took a picture of it. Yeah, and he had it after all these years, and it was still up on a shelf and everything as one of his little wow. little things and everything. So it made me feel pretty. Uh, well, one thing bad that I didn't come visit him more as he got older and everything sure. like that. But you know, I I started living in a different location and it was harder to get together and everything. And we'd see each other at family events, but you know, I never got to really kind of go and engage with him where he ended up passing away, unfortunately. So
0: so we didn't talk about this in our first conversation, but I'm I'm kind of curious. Your your uncle did. Uh, did he ever get involved in in steelhead conservation or or uh, did he have any of these um did, did he ever say anything about um, you know run uh, you know the run sizes and how he has seen them change or was there anything there with him you know it's really interesting because he was living at
1: a time where you know it' was still pretty plentiful steelhead runs but it was really interesting because when we get together and hang out together, he would ask me questions. He would like talk to me about like some of these these issues of the day, right? Like, you know, uh, you know, when when somebody disposes of their garbage, where does it go? I go, well, it just goes. You know, we get rid of it by taking it to the dump, right? He goes, no, no, you're not getting rid of it. You're just moving it, <sighs> you know. And he'd, like, have these conversations with me, and I'm just like, you know, it was interesting, but I'm just like, okay, where are you, you know, I'm, I'm 12 years old, right? Sure. You know, I'm just having these conversations. And I remember he was really concerned about down in because that was one of the little places that he liked to fish periodically for steelhead. And I remember one time he was really concerned and really kind of upset that they were gonna, they were thinking about building a marina right there in the Duwato Bay. Oh wow! And and, uh, and so he was really worried about that. I remember. And but then he'd ask me questions like, you know, one question I wrote about in the Fly Fish Journal where he'd ask me, "It's like, uh, can you really have ecology and economy at the same time?" And I'm like, well, "What does that mean?" <laughs> you know, what I mean, you know, what I mean, yeah. but you know, he that was a time where you know cuz i had like one of the little i can't remember we used to do a lot of backpacking in my backpack and and i remember there was an ecology flag that was a kind of a green uh, green white flag and it had the ecology symbol up in the corner like a american flag type yeah. thing and someone had gave that to me for some reason and I just like stitched it or my, had my mom stitch it on my little backpack and stuff that I went backpacking with and stuff. Yeah. And my uncle would ask me, do you know what that means? Do you know, do you understand what ecology means? Right. And so like, it kind of forced me to kind of think a little bit, I guess, you know, and yeah. maybe not so much right then and there, but I think. It was always something that would creep into my mind as I was doing something, or
0: you know, whatever. And so it sounds like he he was like a naturalist that just deeply valued um, wild places. Wild places because mm-hmm. of his experience in those. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, and
1: he's a really strong guy of faith. I mean, he you know he's he was uh, he was uh, a really great uncle at. You know, it really taught me a lot just by hanging out with them. Um, yeah. You know, and my dad was great too. I mean, obviously, I mean, you know, but he was really into salmon fishing, and so we'd go out and go mooching for king salmon, and that was kind of his yeah. his thing. Yeah. So I got my steelhead thing from my uncle, and probably my salmon thing from my dad. Yeah. So um lucky kid, man. Yeah, <laughs> I, I lucked out. But yeah, I was I was a I was a fishing obsessed kid ever since I was a kid. I yeah. remember. Yeah, you know, i remember the first time i went fishing it was with my dad and we went down to the creek down by our house and i i don't remember if i caught anything i just remember standing there with my dad and looking in the water it is, it is this memory that i have and i just it's just kind of this surreal type of thing that yeah. you think back on as a kid right you know and i'd do dumb things i'd go down to the creek and i'd like try to make a fish pond out of some rocks and then i go up to this like little there's a uh, little dam above that this um one guy had horses and he had like a little irrigation place and but it harbored a bunch of coastal cutthroat in it right because okay. he had dammed it up sure, right sure. and they started getting big and what i mean big was like 13 inches is the biggest fish yeah. right i caught out of there but that's where I started fly fishing a little bit, too, because I'd go up there and um, I had this wreck of a fly rod from my uncle again. And and uh, it was, you know, I'd cast like a spruce fly, right? Right. Classic cutthroat, old cutthroat pattern. Right, and, yeah. And catch these cutthroat out of there. And I'd, I'd put them in a bucket, right? And I'd like try to carry them down to the creek and yeah. be like, okay, man, I'm going to empty them into this. Like little pond I made, right? Yeah, you yeah. know the creek, and I go down there and I go back down a week later, thinking I was going to catch them again, yeah. and they're like gone.
0: Yeah, there's raccoon prints everywhere. No, it yeah. wasn't that. It's
1: just like what I realized was, you know, I didn't understand the whole idea of anatomy, right? Oh, sure. So like those cutthroat, as soon as they had an opportunity in the creek and stuff, yeah, like, they just went it. out to the out to the Liberty <laughs> Bay. <laughs> so, you know, that was that was that. But um, so um. Yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting childhood. I actually had a lot of opportunities, I mean, and a lot of it was just on my own. I mean, where I just kind of, you know, went down and played with hunches and just all that thing. But I think that's one thing I think a lot of people can re- relate to, uh, fishing especially, is this whole idea of, like, it's all about um, the hunch or it's all about, you know, I wonder— what's up around that next bend or there's, mm-hmm. there's always something that you're always kind of thinking about or you're considering, yeah. right. You know, and it's, it's, it's just, that's why fishing is is such a great um, activity because I think it really forces you to really kind of think about things and, and really have serious introspection with yourself and really, you know, it, it's, it's a, I like to consider it more of a, just more of a, um, I don't want to call it a hierarchy needs, but it's it's this whole thing of like, really, you know, like a lot of people are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? right. You know, yeah. but you know, I look at it as like, okay, you just want to, you just want to catch a fish, right? Then you want to catch a lot of fish, and then you want to catch a really big fish, and then you want to catch the most difficult fish, and then pretty soon you get to a point where I want to fish where I want to do it the way i want to and just you know the opportunity is is a big part of it and the action of doing it and the way you methodically do it and i think those are a lot of things those things and that would be kind of what you'd call the self-actualization element of it and
0: uh okay so your first steelhead uh caught on a on a worm in the tail out and yeah. um but 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 then, and then you caught one on the Oakey Drifter. Right. So what was kind of, what was your uh, um, progression or like, how did, you know, f- so you were already kind of into fly fishing, but, but when did you really just focus on chasing them with a the fly and, and then kind of leaving the, command? Yeah. You know? so, cause the conventional tackle is, it's easier to catch a steelhead mm-hmm. than on the fly, right? And so. Like, at first, you just want to catch your first one, and then you want to catch the most, right? right? And so, um, you know, conventional tackle, if you want to catch the most, like, that's going to, well, I mean, I guess a gill net would probably beat out a conventional tackle. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am not talking about but, gill nets, but, yeah, yeah. you know. So, but, um, but what that, when was that for you, and what did that, that transition look like, and were you, and how, what was your thought process behind, be, at that time, behind how you were angling for steelhead?
1: Yeah, that's, that's really a great question, Blake. Um, I think, you know, I really first really started fishing for steelhead gear fishing, especially drift fishing. That's the way I was taught. So I learned to drift fish, and and as I did that, I got progressively better, and And drift fishing is challenging. I mean, it's not an easy thing to do, but once you start doing it and you do it well, it, it's a pretty enjoyable way to fish. I mean, you you know, unfortunately you end up losing a lot of gear, you know, compared to like the way it's done now. You know, a lot of people just use floats and jigs and that sort of thing, right? But, you know, there was like that subtlety of like understanding, you know, it's drifting along and you can feel like suddenly kind of a spongy stop. Yeah. And then there's the fish, right? And so there's there's a real art to being a really good drift fisherman, right? And as I did that, I, you know, I, I trout fished with a fly and I just, you know, I'd always hear about people catching them on the fly. And I just got to a point where it's just like, you know, I know how to do it this way. I really want to catch one on the fly. And so I started doing that. And, and to this day, I mean, a lot of people probably don't know it and some people do, but I do still fish a single handed fly rod for steelhead. And again, it's that whole thing. And that's just kind of the way I would like to do it. And that's how I want to do it. And plus, I'm too afraid that I'd end up going down to your shop and spending a bunch of money on a bunch of spay gear. (laughs) So, you know, so I don't want to unlock that Pandora's box at this point. You have to go back to work. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, so. You know, I kept on doing I remember I'd go out to the peninsula and I'd bring both rods, right? Yeah. And I'd always resort to the security blanket of my drift rod again, right? Right. right. And I finally said, God dang it, I'm not going to do it unless I just, like, leave that thing at home, yeah. right? So I finally just left it at home and just started swinging. you know, I took my hits, you know, it took, took a little while and then one day it just suddenly happened and got this really great grab and got a really nice fish. And then from there on,
0: I just like, you know, I just,
1: I want to do this more often. Do you,
0: do you remember where that first fish on the fly where, where you were at? Yes, I do. It was actually,
1: um, it was actually on the Boga Okay, and it was on the lower part of the Bogashiel. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to say where, I mean, everybody knows where places are, right? Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I mean, it was, it was interesting, you know, egg sucking leech, sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, and so it was, it was, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: we drifted by that spot when you and I fished this last summer oh yeah okay yeah and probably, you, think, you think about that i, I like, probably lost my fly box <laughs> 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 remember i lost that fly your, box your summer run steelhead flies yeah. i know okay I so if anyone it. has a found a fly yeah. box this last summer and do you write your name on the box i do but
1: you know the thing is is like i'm a sucker for simplicity i don't like to carry a lot of gear with sure. me right and so like i had this bad habit of like putting my fly box in my just chest part of my waders yeah so like of course when i go over to take a leak or whatever you know right. stuff like that i just lay it down on the ground and then yeah. pretty soon we get down to the next you know series of runs down there and start fishing i go i think i'll change this
0: fly and i'm just like <laughs> oh, no. oh god dang it i did it again Yeah, um, i don't so. know if i've lost i mean a lot of people lose fly boxes yeah. but i think i don't maybe i don't maybe i did lose one but i don't realize it at this point but um yeah i've never never lost uh, a fly box yeah so we'll we'll see knock yeah. on wood okay so uh you had posters on your wall of the dean river um i i had posters on my my wall when i was uh, 11 of of uh, all of the stars of the san francisco giants i was a <laughs> right. big giants fan at that time um so um so when when did you finally get to the to the Dean River and what was what was that experience like?
1: Yeah, you know it took me actually quite a while, and um, you know I, I always wanted to go there. W- one thing you find sometimes in the your angling world is finding the people to actually commit and want to do it, right? And you'd always have people, yeah, I'm interested, I'm interested, but you know it's like, oh man, I don't have enough time, I don't, you know, blah blah blah, right? And so I finally a buddy of mine called me up, said, "Hey, I'm gonna go in. Do you want you want in?" I said, "Yep, I'm in." We went in, and uh, it was, I, I, you know, I wrote another article about it, and it talks a lot about that that trip and kind of how I'd been waiting for it, so long for it to happen, and. And just the idea of of even flying in or helicoptering in or whatever is just, you know, seeing the system and just seeing this pretty pristine habitat. Right. And just this is what a steelhead river should kind of look like, you know, and 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 I just it was it was almost more than just catching the fish there it was actually experiencing that place and the idea that you were gonna be fishing for some of the strongest steelhead on the planet, right? And and it certainly didn't disappoint me. I mean, I it was I had one fish that I got. It was uh it was probably in that it was a nice big hen. It was about eighteen pounds. I nice. uh, uh, you know and um I actually caught it in a place right down towards the lower part of the river. It was uh, called the subtitle. I think it was called subtitle. It it was, uh it was either lower tidal or subtitle, but it was, anyway, it was, it was covered up in high tide and okay. you could fish it at, at low tide. Right. And so I was fishing through there. It was a fresh and, fish. Yeah. Well, and I-, I got a grab and wow. I, I hooked it, it screened line way to my backing and, you know, uh, one of the guys came down because uh, we were fishing at the time out of Blackwell's. You know, on on the Dean, uh, where Jeff Hickman has his place now. Okay, and he came down and got me, and we went out. And I actually landed it in the Dean Channel. Yeah, so it was in the like, saltwater. Yeah, in the saltwater. Wow. Yeah, you know, so it was pretty pretty cool. I mean, but. It was uh, just this flawless fish. Yeah. I mean, just totally, you know, gray and you know white almost. I mean, it was just such a beautiful fish. That's cool. But yeah, it's it was a it was quite an experience. And I've gone in a couple times and done it on my own and okay. done that. And one thing about nice about doing it on your own is is um, I don't know. You know, there is that sense of like you. You get to just kind of fish when you want to, and you sure. know it's not like I have to reel up at five o'clock or four o'clock and go in and drink cocktails or right. whatever and stuff, you know. And I don't know, it's just it's a lot it's a lot more interesting doing it on your own. But yeah, and you're fishing the water that you, you choose are. to fish instead well, of you're told to fish. You know, again, <laughs> right? you know, I mean, there's a certain level of, I mean, don't get me wrong, I mean, I, I enjoy fishing any different way, but there is something about it. it's like i was talking about that whole hierarchy of needs right you know yeah. where it's just kind of like where you get to a point especially if you if it's a species or whatever that you've learned to angle after and learned a lot about it it's it's that idea of like that satisfaction of like i read the water i i knew how to approach it i I did all the right things. Right. Right. And no one was telling me what to do and how to do it. Right. I just did it through my own, uh, understanding or my own experience. Right. And there's a pretty high level of satisfaction with that. And, um, but you know, that's kind of me, right. It's not for everybody. So, um,
0: yeah. Yeah, no, but I think I definitely think that that is uh, a natural progression of the angler of um, of being self-sufficient to be able to catch the fish. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I really want to um, I really want to try to catch a permit, mm-hmm. uh, you know, by myself. Just wait in the flat. DIY, you yeah. know, like just um, yeah, I, I want to fi- find it catch it like do have have it all you know mm-hmm. just me like no yeah. no guides no no skiff no um so uh, you know that's be, be
1: careful what you ask for <laughs> right? I know, I know. You know,
0: it's like you know it, it can border on obsession right well i'm, I'm yeah i'm i'm definitely obsessed <laughs> when it comes to permit for yeah. sure so your last steelhead um i'm sure you remember the last steelhead uh that you landed Yeah, yeah. Um, It's probably a couple months ago. Yeah, I went
1: over to the Grand Ronde and and fished for uh, a couple days. Okay, in the uh, fall. Yeah, yeah, David Conrad. He's one of the board members on the Wild Steelhead Coalition, a really great guy. And he's been working, you know, really hard to fish for steelhead at a time where it's a lot tougher. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I went along with David and it was really cool because he actually got a fish and— you know, nice little wild fish, about six pounds. And, cool. And he was totally jazzed and totally stoked. And, uh, and then I continued to fish, and um, I missed one. Uh, had a good grab and just didn't stick. And then I continued fishing and ended up getting a nice fish about, you know, I don't know, eight pounds. You know, nice nice colored fish. It was beautiful colored yeah um and uh good grab on the floating line and and uh all you could really kind of ask for and uh and then my last winter fish was you know was on the peninsula and you know just little little bucket and a little chop on it with some rocks and stuff that i kind of figured out over time and went through there and really light tip yeah and uh totally got a really, really good solid build grab and and took it and screamed really nicely and, you know, just nice fish, about, you know, 10, 12 pounds, you know. So, yeah, it was, you know, never get tired of them, you know, but I kind of also, too, I just, you know, it's, again, you know, I, you know, the whole one and done thing is kind of like, you know, it's, I want to say, you know for me i kind of made the choice for myself right it's just like you know i know that runs haven't been as good the last few years uh we've been limited a little bit more and so my attitude was you know if i swing a fish for the day i'm pretty much done i'm just going to put it on my you know my fly and my keep and go cruise around and just look at the river and just kind of try and find some different places to fish. And just, you know, again, you know, to me, it's always about, it's not always just about catching the fish, but it's like figuring something else out or figuring out a different spot or just, just enjoying where you're at. Right. And which leads me to an interesting story too, from a conservation standpoint was probably about 10 years ago, We took Linda Mapes from the Seattle Times on a float down the Queets River, uh, my friend Jim Schmitz and I. And, you know, we have been talking to her quite a bit, and she was really interested in steelhead and what's steelhead all about and what are the issues around steelhead. And it was at a time, too, where she was doing a lot of work uh, writing about the Elwha Dam removal. Right. And she she had, you know, she's done a really great book, and she's gotten a lot of awards for her work on that. And so we floated her down the river for the day, and and we fished, and she liked to collect rocks. We found out, and she'd like collect these rocks and like put them in the raft. And pretty soon we were like rowing this, like you yeah, know, the boat's getting heavier <laughs> and heavier. Exactly. And... <laughs> Jim's like, like going, let's, let's like, the like small rocks. <laughs> right, Linda, let's uh, let's lay off on the rocks a little <laughs> bit here for a minute, you know. But uh, so, but we're cruising down, and she. All of a sudden, this big herd of elk came just crashing through the whole river, right? You know how that, is. I mean, you've been out there, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know how magnificent that is, right? To see those yeah. animals, right? And, to, and especially see them when they crash through the river and everything. And yeah. she was just beside herself. She was like, oh my God, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, you know, and everything. And I, and I, wow, this is pretty freaking awesome, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, and, and so later on, we started talking about it again. We had lunch and we were just talking about it. And— she i said you know linda it's really interesting you know how excited you were to see the elk and and again you know it's, what's really cool is someone can actually drive up the Queets road it's just regular person to go up and go for a hike for the day or any of the drainages on the west side of the peninsula right and you have the potential of seeding a herd of elk right and you get to interact with that animal just for a minute from the standpoint of looking at them and really appreciating what they are and where they're at. And so it creates more of a, um, uh, more of an intimate moment for you, right? As a, as a human being, right? And I said, the problem with steelhead is really the only people that ever see them or appreciate them are the anglers. And, you know, the, and the indigenous folks and stuff. And, you know, because they're concealed under, like, for example, here on the Queets, they're, seal, they're, you know, they're basically, you know, concealed by this glacial water.
0: Right.
1: And no one's going to see them from the general public. No one's going to interact with that animal. And the only people that do is, is pretty much us anglers. So who's the ones that really are going to care for them or really care about them? Right? Because you can have a bunch of people caring about this herd of elk they just saw, right? Yeah, but are those same people really gonna care about this fish that they never even get to see or even have a connection with? You know, And so if it's not up to us, who who's it? And you know, right. who is? Right. right? I mean, you know that's that's the thing. Yeah. It's like we have the least amount of impact, right. In the re- big world reality of everything, we have the least amount of impact, really. You know, if you think about it, you know, we do a catch and release fishery. We, we, you know, use barbless hooks. We try to be as careful as we can to release the fish, and and try to be personally responsible, right? And but at the end of the day, unfortunately, it's kind of up to us, because. Who else is gonna advocate for'? Them? who else is gonna try to do something for them or want them in their future? Right? was that
0: the so was that kind of like the um i imagine that that was the realization and the driving force behind um starting the the wild steelhead coalition um but what were when you guys started the uh the coalition what were the the actual events, circumstances that really ignited like the commitment to do something?
1: Yeah, that's easy. It was uh well, it wasn't easy to do it, but it was easy for the reason why. You know, again, a lot of us, even today on the in the organization, we all like to angle for steelhead. I mean that that's why we do it. We're just you know, we we try to do things that are more based on science and trying to do things that can help the fish and do in our own way, right? And, but at the end of the day, we're all anglers and we like to fish for steelhead. And, but the people that are on the board, they want to do something, right? They want to do something to kind of, um, they want to do something to, um, lessen their piscatorial footprint right you know by giving back as much as they can because when they fish they know that hey I'm doing a lot trying to help these fish and have them in our future but you know so when I do angle form you know I feel like you know or you feel like your piscatorial footprint's a little less right you know it's sure. kind of like the whole carbon footprint type thing right but it was it was interesting because what happened was, again, a lot of us were conservation-minded anglers, and that's what occurred originally because it was in 2000, and that's when they announced, we had all the uh, catch-and-release fisheries on the Skycomish and the North Fork of the Stillaguamish and the Skagit right. and Sauk. And they closed the fishery down, and everybody was up in arms. Everybody was mad. It was, you know, torches and pitchforks, yeah. you know. You know, why is this? And, you know, of, yeah, it's kind of what I'm seeing now on the peninsula, right? You know, but it's kind of like, you know, suddenly this opportunity was taken away. And everybody's screaming about it. And so then a number of us got together and we were like, okay, you know, let's let's have, uh, you know, Kirk Kramer at the time was the bio for that area and stuff. And he came and talked to a bunch of us about kind of what was going on showed us the trend lines, showed us, you know, what, you know, how it had declined, and they were, they were going to have to close it. So it turned into, like, at least a number of us looked at it as, like, okay, I understand a little bit more now, but, like, how did this happen or why did this happen, Right. And there's really not a centrally focused organization just on steelhead. You know, there's a lot of organizations sure. that are doing great work, right? Yeah. Trout but, and salmon. Yeah, and all yeah but yeah. They, they don't have like steelhead as their title. And that's yeah. what they do. And, you know, again, for us as an organization, whatever we do for steelhead is going to benefit other species. Sure. Right. So, but uh, so we got together and formed it in the basement of Ted's down uh, over in Linwood. And, uh, First thing we went after was, you know, okay, well, the first thing we can do is quit killing them. Right. Right. And so we really petitioned the state to adopt a statewide catch and release rule for wild steelhead, no exceptions. And Which today,
0: does? I mean, that doesn't sound revolutionary. No. But, like, but back then no. it probably was like, a, I mean, I, I got to imagine there were people losing their mind about oh yeah you know yeah what do you mean we can't kill a a steelhead oh yeah
1: you know people in small communities were like no one's going to come to our place and or come here anymore and fish and
0: so it was going to affect the economy yeah
1: and didn't happen right right but yeah i mean so at the time you could actually kill 30 wild steelhead per year and and rivers deemed um um healthy enough to support harvest
0: so it was one a day, but 30, 30, 30, 30
1: annual. Right.
0: Wow.
1: Or no, it might've been two a day at one oh, point. You, okay. Yeah. So we are like, okay, let's go after that. So we got together and we wrote a paper called the biological economic benefits of wild steelhead release. And so we had a couple of people that were bios on the, um, on the board yeah. and one guy was a, actually a lawyer and one guy was actually an economist and, so they actually wrote, like, various chapters, like, uh, like for example, there's one on the, the economics of wild steelhead release was, like, okay, how's that benefited other areas that have gone to a catch-and-release regulation, and how's that, you know, how's that done for their economy, how, you know, how important that is, right? And then we had one from a biology standpoint, and they talked about even this last time regarding the Olympic Peninsula about the importance of repeat spawners. And the idea of repeat spawners is is a female steelhead that came in, spawned one time, went back out to the ocean, and came back to spawn a second, third, potentially even fourth time. And each time they do that, they become these really big egg wagons, right? And they, you know, they're, they're very, there's a term for it, is, uh, I think, fecundity, right, of their ability to, you know, really—
0: um, uh, add into the you know spawning recruitment or whatever, right? So the okay, so the females that are coming back as a repeat spawner, just the sheer number of eggs that they have is right. multiplied over that right. that mm-hmm. first time.
1: So they're they're so that's an important. Increasing. When you
0: talk about numbers, like yeah, those are pretty. So those big important.
1: hands you catch, I mean, those a lot of times they're potentially repeat spawners, and yeah. they're bringing a lot to the party. Right? Yeah. So, um, and again, you know, they, on the peninsula, at least what they talked about last time was, you know, they're seeing less of the repeat spawners and there was, that was a concern, but we wrote a chapter about that. And we wrote all these things about justifying why it's important and why you can have opportunity with the catch and release fishery, but, um, you know, and still potentially recover the fish. And, Which I believe is still true. However, I think the problem is, is we've gotten to a point where we have less places to fish. So there's more of an effort in some of the areas where um, we're actually catching a lot more fish. Right, because we're a lot more efficient, a lot more effective, a lot more people have boats. I mean, people have like the technology at their hands where they know exactly what the river levels are doing. Yeah. I mean, all these yeah. things, right? Yeah. Weather forecasts, you very, know how much the river's gonna right. go up, yeah. We're a very efficient and effective predator, yeah. right? And, and even, I would even argue, even as a, as a fly angler, even a swing angler, yeah. I mean, the equipment's so much better we're able with our tips and stuff to get down, to get into the zone. Yeah. I think we're a lot more effective than, uh, than we were like even, you know, 20 years ago. Again, we're, we're so good at catching more fish and we're also crowded into uh, a smaller area with our open with opportunities. And so we're really hyper-focused, right? And so our impacts are a lot higher. Right. I mean, yeah. last year it was reported that even with a boats for transportation only rule on the Ho River, we had over 86 percent of impacting of catching 80 percent of 86 percent of the fish of that run just fishing from the bank. Yeah, that's, you know, that's crazy. But, that's... but you have to remember, though, too, like the hoe was pretty much, uh, um, fishable pretty much the whole season last season. Yeah. Right. I mean, there wasn't a lot of rain events that put it out and you weren't able to fish, but still, I mean, you know, again, just a total bank fishery. And we still were able to have an impact on 86% of the run. And when I mean impacts is like, you know, we caught or hooked and landed and released uh, 86% of what they, um, um, Projected as being the run in the system, right? So there was like maybe what four no 14%, no, I can't remember, 15% of the fish that we didn't catch,
0: right? <laughs> those are the ninjas. And and <laughs> like the those, thing is, it's like and
1: again, you know, it's like, yeah, catch and release is a is a um has less impact, right? But but not, it's still, no impact. It, it still has right. an impact, yeah. right? I mean, you know, they estimate like a ten percent hooking mortality. A lot of people can argue whether that's true or not, but that's sure. what they estimate. But it's also, you know, the handling and and some of these fish have been caught multiple times, and it, you know, from the studies that and the science out there, is it impacts their spawning capabilities, right? Yeah, and so, so the, the
0: fish might might the fish might swim off and might be fine Mm -hmm. but then it's success at spawning might be affected because of that encounter with that angler right okay yeah
1: so again you know it's kind of like okay you know and i'm not saying that we don't fish for them i'm just saying you know how do we do that in a way that's has less impact right and you know it's it's I think it's interesting because I think we can all think about that a little bit more about, okay, how do I interact? I guess it's more about what is the idea of fair chase anymore, really, right? We've gotten so good at this, you know, and so, again, the whole idea of fishing was the whole idea of fair chase, right? So for so much better, what are the things we back down on that still makes it that still engages that challenge but still creates this idea of fair chase Mm -hmm. right so how do you do that right yeah and uh you know and it's at a time where unfortunately we're we're seeing a decline and and unfortunately we're at a point where you know there's a petition right now to actually list Wild steelhead on the Olympic Peninsula, and yeah, there's probably the going to be a endang- decision yeah. soon, right? Endangered and, species,
0: yeah. I facts. mean, it,
1: you know, it's kind of like what we're eleven. Uh, okay, so the Endangered Species Act it brings it down to, I think, uh, fifteen distinct population segments. So there's fifteen distinct po- population segments in it in you know the endangered or ESU, right? And so 11 of 15 of them are listed, either as threatened or endangered, right? Yeah. And so with each one of those, yeah, there's still some fisheries in some of those areas, right? But it's slowly closed off fisheries and slowly like it's it's like a manifest destiny thing, right? You know, we're pretty much, you know, everybody's concentrated into a smaller and smaller area and this is where we're at and so what do we do and how do we approach that as anglers right and is it important enough to us to you know do things or to try to do something different um you know i wish i had the answers i, sure. I don't know I, well there's you know, complications
0: I just... right because like you have um you, you don't only have the issue of the projected steelhead numbers for you know the this year mm-hmm. but then you're also looking down the road and with uncertainty around climate change and how that right. will affect mm-hmm. affect fish um uh, i mean Geez, there was a a picture posted on Instagram last summer, Mm -hmm. uh, showing side channels out on, um, uh, like the, the, I think it was like the, the, one of the forks of the Kalawa and some, you know, some stuff like that. where just like, just tons of juvenile, uh, coho and steelhead that were dead because the river had completely dried up. And, you know, so we have that as a challenge, but then also the other challenge is, okay, well. Puget Sound population is supposed to grow by 1 million to a million and a half people in the, in the next decade. And, you know, they're not all anglers, but there's, there's quite a few of them that are going to want to, want to fish. Right. So like when when it comes to like overcrowding and when it comes to impact on, on, you know, fewer available fisheries, um, you know, we have to, we have to be looking at like what the future impacts could be on just more people wanting to fish and how do you accommodate, that yeah. because no one wants to be told they can't fish exactly right you know so um so it's like how do yeah how do we how do we help these yeah fish i don't know here I mean, tomorrow i think about it a
1: lot right and you know i i used to hunt before i went back to college and stuff and i kind of quit and i just kind of kept fishing all the time but you know i almost wish i would have stuck with wing shooting i think that would have been really something cool to keep with but i didn't but I always think about it all the time because right right now you think about the hunting community, right? They have all sorts of restrictions, right? You have to draw permits to hunt in some of these places. Yeah. And there's certain types of seasons for certain types of uh, methods, right? And so there's a lot of restrictions in hunting, but anytime you even mention any type of restriction in the fishing world, I mean everybody loses their head, yeah. right? And and it's like, what do you do differently? I mean, what can you do? And because at the end of the day, we're we're trying to share a, sh- a shrinking resource, right? So how do you share that resource that can still allow opportunity? but still allow the fish to potentially recover, right? Because all our fisheries now, they're all based on impacts. If you think about it, it's like, it's all about like, okay, if we have a certain number of impacts, that means we close the season because they can't allow that many impacts, right? We see it in our salmon seasons, right? Yeah,
0: so share for people that might not be familiar with that, uh, share what, uh, what that means um, by, by impacts. So impact is, okay, I caught
1: a fish and I released it, right? So that that would be an impact. Yeah. So, you know, again, you, we see it a lot in our salmon fisheries right now, you know, right? Because a lot of people will bemoan the fact that we have these fisheries. I mean, you've seen it in Tacoma. They open it up for a few days and then some yeah. booms closed. Yeah, four right? days a then it, yep. Because there was too many impacts. Right. And it wasn't just impacts on adults, but right. it was impacts on the juvenile fish, right? Yep. The they're shakers. Count, they're counting all out. the little guys right. and
0: the mortality rates probably higher on right. those with and those so, giant hooks.
1: Yeah. So you look at like okay, you can have a fishery and we can have a fishery that is anything goes. But you're going to be limited to a few days because the impacts are going to be really high, right? Or you can figure out other ways of doing it where there's less impacts and you can potentially have a longer season right? because your impacts are lower, right? And so that's what's happening a lot with a lot of our uh, seasons is just it's all being based on impacts, right? The same thing, like on the Olympic Peninsula, right? You know, okay, if they have this this uh fishery and let's say it's anything goes i mean let's say it's like you know hey man everybody go in there you know use whatever and pretty soon it's like okay we have this many impacts right we're gonna shut it down now right yeah or okay you can't you know i know the the boat thing is like a you know it's like a lightning rod right and it's just it's kind of tiresome to be honest with you, but it's, it's, but you think about it, it's like, okay, well, you could either fish, not fish from a boat. Yeah. And potentially let's say you have a full season, right. seems like that'd be in everybody's best interest. Right. You know, even, you know, people who are commercially guiding clients and everything like that. I know there's like some limitations on being able to take an elderly, you know, client out and that sort of thing, which is, I think there's gotta be a better solution for it.
0: It's complicated. Well, and so like the, like our, our King fishery in, I mean, uh, many listeners that just, you know, live around Gig Harbor uh, experienced this last summer where um, the quota for uh, Chinook for Kings in area 11, uh, you know, it was like 2,400 fish or 2,600 fish or something like that. It's over over 2,000 fish, but they shut the season down at 24% of the quota because of the sub-legal encounters, so too many small fish were around. Mm-hmm. They got hooked, and it was like they they allow a certain amount of those to get hooked, you know, with mortality rates and stuff like that. And it was like way way over. So not only did like the kings get shut down, and the other, you know, seventy six percent of the right. of the potential quota on adult fish, like you know, get get a free pass, uh, but the pinks were coming back at that time too, and then right. they wouldn't allow any fishing for pinks because they didn't want impact on the kings because they had already had too much impact and it's so it's just it's complicated like there's very complicated there's because you're talking about different species different user groups Mm -hmm. like it's um right yeah i mean it's a it's it's quite the puzzle to put together right uh, a fishery because it's not just it's not just the impact that sport anglers have right Um, it's it's the it's the uh the aggregate right it's the sum total of 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 all all of the different interests on those fish right and right. and so it's not and it's not just sport anglers or tribal fishermen or commercial fishermen it, you know i mean it's it's now also right like the resident whale you know, so, right. you know the killer cool. whales are like another <laughs> yeah group so that gets that's like...
1: that's really interesting right so you have so, the you know endangered you know killer whales right okay or endangered orcas and then you have that are feeding on endangered chinook right, right? And then the endangered chinooks eggs are being feasted on by endangered bull trout, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, think of the paradox, yeah. right? I yeah. mean it's 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 pretty pretty interesting when you really kind of get into it. but uh, but yeah, I mean, where I was going is like again, these you know, you can have a longer season if you lessen your methods in the way you could have potentially higher impacts, right? And so personally, I mean, I'm willing to kind of take the hit if I know I can go like, hey man, I can plan on fishing this season and I don't have to worry about out being out there only on Wednesday of the week.
0: <laughs> right. Right.
1: You know, and um, be there with everybody and all my best buddies, yeah. right? I mean yeah. and again, I mean, maybe that doesn't bother people, but you know, to me, you know, fishing is kind of an experience of yeah, there's always going to be people you interact with. And as long as everybody has good etiquette and is cordial to each other on the river and stuff like that, you know, it can be a very pleasant day, but all it takes is one bad interaction with somebody, you know, sure. like somebody comes down, low holds you or whatever and stuff, you know, and it just kind of spoils the day, yeah. you know, for people. Yeah. And, you know, it's something to think about too, is how do we treat each other as anglers, you know, and, and, you know providing good etiquette and giving each other an opportunity to fish the water and you know not be feel like you're being interfered upon sure you know this is all about sharing the resource and sharing the water right you know and that was the thing is like i remember jd love he was in a uh, one of the um steelhead advisory group meetings and everybody was talking about all these different issues again and and J.D. brought up the point, which I thought was a really good point, where he said, you know, you know why does somebody feel like they got to catch every fish in the river, right? Or why can't they be happy just catching a fish or two for the day, right? Why do they feel like they got to catch, you know, you know, six or eight fish for the day, right? You know, when, like, maybe there's a guy down there taking his kid, trying to catch his first steelhead. And one of those fish that you left in the river, you know, could have ended up on that kid's line, right? Yeah. And given that kid an opportunity, right? And again, you know, it's it's this idea of how do you how do you share? And so he really brought that out. It's all about sharing the resource. You know, it's it's pretty finite. It's 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 not it's not big anymore, right? And I wish I had all the answers. I, I don't. I just try to do what I can do, you know, and that's, that's all really anybody can do.
0: So, and I think that that's where we can wrap up is, is with a challenge, you know, for all of us that are um, steelhead anglers and love these fish, Um, you know, what, what can we do? How, how can we uh, still continue to fish for steelhead? Um, And then how can we do that in ways that, um, that respect the fish? are uh, and ensure that those fish can be here for the future and then how else can we get involved beyond just the method of angling or the the decisions we make on the water but how else can we also make decisions off the water that can benefit fish um, and um, and ensure that there are uh, wild fish for, um, for our future. And, um, right now I hear my, uh, I can hear my, my 12 year old son, uh, out in the, the hallway. And, um, and you know, I'm, I mean, your story about JD love, I'm like, yeah, you know, I would, I, I want to be there when Caden yeah. catches his first steelhead. Yeah. And I hope he gets the opportunity to do that, yeah. you know, someday. Well, I mean, i
1: got to a point, you know, where, when I originally started and, you know, really kind of doing conservation for wild steelhead was, it did it because i wanted to catch steelhead yeah right and i wanted him in my future so i could catch them right and now i've gotten to the point now where it's not about me anymore you know it, it really isn't it's now it's about the future generation it's it's about my kids having the opportunity to go fish in places that i did and kind of what you're saying with your son and again it's not about me anymore it's about the future and uh, I think that's a really important thing to, to take away. The other thing is, um, I think it's really important first for you to have an introspective moment, right? And really look at yourself and say, you know, how am I interacting with this fish? And, you know, what am I doing, right? To make it a potential better world, right? And again, it's always hard to think about where you start with that. And I think really seriously, the first thing that you can do is really kind of dig into it, learn more about the fish, you know, learn about their life histories. Uh, Just like even on our website, we did a Wild Steelhead Now or Never campaign, and it really helps break down like how a person can kind of get involved and what they can kind of do. And I really encourage people to read that. It was a really well-written piece. Uh, We worked on it pretty hard. Uh, Greg Fitz is a great writer, and he wrote most all of
0: it. We'll we'll put a link to that yeah. in the show notes for everyone.
1: And uh so I think, you know, reading that would really help and, you know, we need to create a kind of a steelhead army where people will, you know, advocate or go talk to, you know, their representatives or go talk to the department and say how important these fish are for my future or for our future you know, it's our state fish for God's sake. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. you know, it seems like we could do something.
0: Rich, thanks for, uh, thanks for protecting fish and, and working towards that. And then just the, your perspective on, uh, on just loving others and wanting others to have a fishable future too. That's, I really appreciate that. That's pretty cool. Oh, thanks and, Blake. Um, so, uh, you can um, you can share this. Uh, maybe there's someone you know that needs to uh, hear this conversation too, just to get them maybe excited about the Steelhead season coming up, but also to do some. Uh, some hard work in steelhead conservation you can share that through um, the audio on apple podcasts and um and spotify and wherever you get your podcast audio it's all on those different platforms but then it's also on youtube so if you're listening on audio and you want the you want the video version um you know feel free to share that around with people and uh and thanks for uh, hanging in there with us and listening to this episode of the gig harbor flycast thanks Wow. wow.